Welcome to Real Britain, the podcast of my show on GB News. I'm Darren Grimes and you can catch me live every Saturday and Sunday afternoon from 2 till 3. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up with the best bits here every week. So here we go. Let's talk about the issues that matter to you in Great Britain. Now, folks, I'm about to say something that'll go down like a bag of sick with the Twitterati. It might not be popular, it might even be boring in some quarters, but I think it needs to be said. This is my ode to oil. The oil and gas industry in Britain is one of our, most na our nation's most important, if you ask me. It supplies energy to power enterprise. It heats our homes. It makes sure that you can get to work. It allows aeroplanes to transport our everyday goods and, of course, people to and from our nation. If you're holding your tele-remote right now, its plastic is oil. The fertiliser used to produce the food you eat is oil. The detergent you're using to do your washing is oil. The paint you've just used to do up the house is oil. The potentially life-saving medicine you're taking each day is oil. That's why it's absolutely baffling to me that hardly anybody seems to be criticising the Extinction Rebellion love child Just Stop Oil on what they're doing and what they're actually calling for. The extreme green activists clashed with lorry drivers yesterday as protesters blocked oil terminals and hauled themselves on top of tankers in planned Easter demonstrations to thwart oil transportation. Now, folks, a driver in Essex was pictured yanking one of them from his vehicle. Someone just trying to make a living, going about his day-to-day -day life. And given how vital oil is, especially during a severe cost-of-living crisis, I can understand this bloke's frustration. It's also common sense to suggest it's not safe to have randoms treating an oil tanker like it's a kid's climbing frame. And I certainly write, I don't condone physical violence, but this driver may well have prevented any, some form of disaster here. Who knows, folks, right? You'll have to be Mystic Meg. What I do know, though, and what you don't, I think, have to be a clairvoyant to understand, and what is utterly baffling, frankly, is how anyone can defend people who attack somebody like this man for actually seeking to counter and stop these activists that want to dismantle capitalism and the structures of the state. They're activists, right? They parrot lines on how we're looking at the end of life on Earth. Well, I'm sorry, but ask yourself this. Ask yourself, if you genuinely believed that the world was about to end in either a ball of flames or by drowning every single one of its inhabitants and that it was too late for humanity to act, would you really, would you honestly spend your final days gluing your behind to the middle of a road? And ask yourself how they get away with it. Some are arrested time and again. Remember the scenes in the past during anti-lockdown protests, for example. The police always cleared them without a second thought. Woke causes get a free pass in modern Britain. And these people say, we just want to be listened to. They cry, that's their rallying cry, these brattish climate 
activists. And I say, listen to. Our energy bills are spiralling out of control. But our government hasn't wavered from its net zero zealotry. If anything, they need to be listened to a lot less to protect British pay packets in a country, let's not forget, that emits less than 1% of global CO2 emissions. In what way can you honestly argue that these people have been ignored? I agree with the former Brexit Secretary, Lord Frost, who said that the government is on a plan where it's not engaging with the trade-offs. It won't be possible, he says, to deliver net zero on the timetable they want, and we will end up with rationing and behavioural change. Pretty damning, if you ask me. And that's the oil-free future that I think these activists actually want. And I, folks, I for one, until there's an alternative, hope to almighty God that they fail. Another topic that caught my eye this week was the National Education Union saying that schools should teach social justice and black history across the whole UK national curriculum. In doing so, they say it would stop incidents like the one with Child Q, the black schoolgirl who was wrongly strip-searched earlier this year from happening again. So do we need a more diverse curriculum? Here to discuss this issue, I'm joined by social policy analyst Dr. Rahib Hassan and Elliot Reid, the founder of blackhistory.school. Rahib, thank you for your company. Do we need a more diverse curriculum? Is this going to stop incidents like Child Q, for example, from actually happening? I think that in modern day Britain, it's very important that our schools act as uh, intergroup hubs of cultural exchange. I think that is very important. But ultimately, when it comes to British education, I want to see more of a focus on hard skills. I think that our maths, literacy, and all the rest of it, I think we need to focus on improving those standards. Now, of course, you want schools to be um, hubs of inclusive learning, and you want students to be able to develop their um, knowledge in a, in, a, in a safe manner. My issue is more that I don't want uh, what I would consider to be contested theories to be presented as fact in our classrooms. And we have seen politicians suggest that is taking place in schools within England in particular. So I think that the discussion is how do we create uh, schools which ultimately helped uh, politicians uh, pupils from different backgrounds develop those bonds of social trust and mutual respect without presenting theories as fact which could potentially be divisive within those schools. Elliot, you've heard what Rakib had to say there. In my view, right, there should be no such thing as LGBT history, black history or women's history on the curriculum. To me, and I'm sure to many viewers watching, there is one thing and one thing only, and that's British and world history, right? That's there for all of us, no matter what our skin colour or sexuality, and we should teach that, should we not? I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding of the argument of what's being put forward. As you said, black history is British history. When we look at the ethnic makeup of the UK, 75% of those ethnic minorities are from the descendants of British subjects. Now, I've 
done a little bit of my own research and I've looked at the past papers that have been presented by AQA and Edexcel. And despite the national curriculum stating that it is important to understand the individuals and the makeup of individuals who have created life in Britain as we know it, despite them saying it's important to teach that, there's absolutely no um, concrete matter in teaching children as to how the descendants of British subjects have created Britain as we know it today. And that's an issue because when it comes to children's psychology, it's been documented ever since the early psychologists such as Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, that children or people need a hero story to step into. They need to be able to see the reflection of themselves in the development of, the, of society. It's very, very difficult to talk about an empire which ruled 25% of the Earth's people and not mention India, Jamaica, Hong Kong, uh, the, Amer the Americas to, to another degree. It's, it's Children are being robbed of a much better education, which explores economic contributions, ethical, moral contributions, which have created Britain as we know it today. So, yes, 100% black history should be taught. Right. I've heard what you've got to say. Elliot, do you not agree with Rakib, though, that actually the curriculum is swelling like you wouldn't believe, right? When actually kids need to be taught the basic things, right? They're leaving school without proficient English and the uh, math skills that they need to go out there into the workplace. Are you worried that we're piling too much on to the curriculum? No, because they teach history anyway, so you just fit it into the history curriculum. You're not talking about adding another subject. You're just talking about fitting it into the existing curriculum. The NEU aren't the only union to actually ask for this. So earlier this month, the National Association of Schoolmasters Union of Women Teachers said they want to decolonize the classroom and teach pupils about black people's contribution to Britain in all its subjects, from maths to even food technology. I mean, to me, Rakib, this is all just going a bit mental, right? And we heard from the likes of Miriam Cates MP saying that actually kids mm. are being told that they can transition behind their parents' backs. And I, I imagine most viewers watching this are just saying, just get this activism out of schools. Yes, teach British history, and I agree with much of what Elliot had to say there, but all of this stuff added on to the curriculum, it's just too much. I think one point that I do agree with Elliot, and I think this is actually a way that you can boost social cohesion in modern-day Britain. Take, for example, how we teach uh, the Second World War. I think there's definitely more space to discuss the contribution made by Asian, African and Caribbean soldiers towards the broader allied effort to defeat Nazism. And I think that's something that shouldn't only be taught in inner city schools, I think that should be taught in schools across Britain, whether it's rural villages or inner city London or Birmingham. I think that the point I'd make to Elliot is that there has to, something has to give and ultimately there has to be a broader discussion in terms of what should be prioritised in our curriculum. And I think that's something that we should have that conversation. I think things like you know, the proposal that I've just provided, I don't want to see people, the sort of anti-war activists say, oh, this is too militaristic. I think it's important that Britain acknowledges the contribution made by um, members of the British Indian Army, soldiers from the Caribbean, um, the East African Rifles. I think those contributions, we should talk about them a lot more. 
And I think also it should be taught within our history lessons in schools. But we have to be aware of the risk of social activism. The main point that I would make is that we cannot compromise the development of hard skills, which will ultimately provide children with the basics as they enter adulthood and further down the line, the labour market. Elias? You'd like me to comment on what you said, Darren? I would like you to comment on what Rakib's just said, if that's OK. I'd agree with Rakib. Um, now, but once again, the you're not going to detract from hard skills by just filling the history, history curriculum with more useful information and more useful content. The national curriculum, on the national curriculum website, they have already expressed the need for children to learn about empire and for children to learn about the multi-ethnic or multi-group contributions to the UK. The issue is that because, say, examining boards like Excel or AQA, which the teachers already incredibly stressed by the way, at least I think 30% of teachers want to currently leave the industry because of the amount of stress. So they need content which they are going to be able to seamlessly teach the children to satisfy the exam boards, and the exam boards also need to satisfy the national curriculum. On my research, I looked through about 100 past papers for GCSE um, history, and there was only one question out of 100 past papers which alluded to empire, and even that was pretty borderline propagandish. It didn't really satisfy um, anything from a true historical objective nature. Right, but Elliot, you were shaking your head when I mentioned getting activism out of schools. Why do you disagree yeah. with that sentiment? No, I wasn't. There was a lot that I was shaking my head at, Darren. I think it's just that you were trying to put a lot into one sentence and you tried to put black history with LGBTQ history with women's rights. And you, I but think, I in your mind, you as see that. it as. I do view it as separate identity boxes trying to get as much into the curriculum as possible when actually just teach British history. That's all I'm asking for, Elliot. Okay, well, we agree that, on that, but then you have to also understand that, Darren, there have been gay people, black people, Indian people who are also contributed to British history. It's Right, absolutely. British history. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Rakib, you can come in there. I think that we have to you know, maintain focus on you know, what we're actually discussing. For example, I, I think there's no place for radical transgenderism in British schools. That's something that I, I, I'm totally against. I think the discussion we're having is about what is the current content and substance of our curriculum and how can our curriculum actually provide a more wholesome educational experience, which also helps to boost social cohesion in modern day Britain. And I think that's certainly achievable. But I draw the line, for example, if, if we have um, critical race theories being presented as fact, ultimately presenting non-white Brits as some kind of oppressed um, collective in British society. I actually think that would be incredibly demotivating for some ethnic minority peoples in Britain. I think what's much better is, and Elliot will probably agree with me on this, for example, the Black Caribbean contribution to post-World War um, to Reconstruction in the UK. I think that's something that could be factored into our history lessons. Right, men, we're going to have to leave it there. I could continue this debate and go on for hours, no doubt. But that was the social policy analyst, Dr. Rakib Hassan and Elliot Reid, founder of Black History School. Thanks for speaking to me on Real Britain today. Now, the UEFA Women's 22 tournament gets underway on July 6th. 
The opening match takes place between England and Austria at Old Trafford. UEFA have announced that over 350,000 tickets for the tournament have already been sold. So it's now the time to really focus on the women's game and give it a boost for a change. Well, joining me to discuss, I'm delighted to say, is Janie Frampton, a former referee for the men's professional game. Janie, just on the Euros later this year, they are actually set, we know already, to break attendance records, already selling more tickets than the 2017 run. What do you reckon actually explains this surge in popularity? Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I do believe this surge in popularity is in some of the countries, you know, we're talking about particularly Asia, America and in Europe now, they're promoting women's football a huge amount. And that means there was almost like a chicken and egg situation that needed to happen. And that was you needed money invested into women's football before women's football became far more publicized on, on TV and radio and the coverage. Now, that seems to have happened. A lot of sponsorship has come in, and it seems that um, that has now promoted women's the women's game, which has then encouraged broadcasters to put it on mainstream channels, which has grown participation for sure. And do you think the game being showcast more by broadcasters has something to do with it? Yes, of course. You know, and I get asked all the time, you know, so what's women's football about? And I say, well, do you know what? Watch it and then come back to me with that question. But until people have watched it and they realise just how technical it is, and we've also got now this whole point where they need to stop comparing women's football to men's football because they're two different games. And you've got to value and respect each of those games on their own merits. Yes. Well, interestingly, it's interesting that you say that because one thing, and I imagine it must frustrate you, people will say that women just aren't as skillful as the men and therefore it's not as interesting a game. Now, as a former referee of the men's game, how big is the gap in the quality of playing? There's no gap. There's no gap. They're two different games. I used to always say that refereeing women's football was my, my passion. Refereeing the men's game was my challenge. Now, when you look at the two different games, you look at the physiology of men. They're bigger, stronger. They have more stamina than women. And that's research can back that up every single day of the week. But the women are actually more technical because they don't have the same strength and stamina as men. They rely on their skill and their tactics, so they play far more ball to feet. So it's far more tactical instead of playing long balls in the air. Yeah, you know, I was watching the Scotland game, women's football, and Erin uh, Cuthbert, who also plays for Scotland and she plays for Chelsea as well. A real story, a success story, and a success story of not just football, but of the union of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Do you think people like Erin are given enough chance? Because are there enough academies and coaches out there for the, the women's game? Are they able to actually bring in talented women and say, you know, you've got it, we'll get you somewhere? You know what? That's a really good question. And we could break that down even further, that do we have enough women role models as coaches? That is really paramount. Do we have enough male coaches that understand the needs of the women's game. And I say all the time, please don't tell me 
what we need as women until you've walked in our shoes or at least asked us what we need. So I think so the answer to that is we need certainly to develop our women coaches. We've got great numbers that are out there now about the amount of women coaches we have, but we really need to look at far more in high-profile jobs and make it worthwhile for these women to take these high-profile jobs. Not, not offer them a, a, an amount of money that is nowhere near matching, um, not the equivalent to men, but something that is respectful to the role. And that is still not happening. There's still not enough money in the women's game to make that happen. Hmm. When you get comments from the Northern Ireland manager, for example, Kenny Shields saying that girls and women are, are more emotional than men, so they, they take a goal going in not very well, you know, you get sort of, I, I guess, what I, the caricature in my head is a woman getting a handbag out, which of course doesn't happen at all. What do you think when you hear no. remarks like this? You know, that is firstly very disrespectful, secondly, totally naive, and thirdly, I think he needs a lesson in emotional intelligence, because the research will show really clearly that women have a higher level of emotional intelligence because they understand the emotions all the way around of different different situations, different people, and then they know how to behave and how to manage those situations. Now, that's research that can back that up. That's not me just talking to you. So, yes, we are more emotional, but we also know how to use those emotions. Yeah. A big question, of course, but what do you think actually needs to ultimately be done? I mean, we've sort of touched on it. But still, we've just heard an example there of the people being a little bit reluctant, perhaps, to one, even let women play, never mind watch women playing football. How do you think yeah. you, we, you get past those, I guess you would call them stigmas? Yeah, and you know what, Darren, we're still a long way behind. We've come a long, long way, and I will never, ever put that down because the growth in participation has been huge. We still need to see a growth in refereeing and coaching. We still need to see a growth in sponsors sponsoring women's football. More than anything, we need to see more women decision makers because we still have so many men that are decision makers at the top end of our game that that's not going to change anything until we get women involved in those decisions who can then give a balanced view of what, what it is that we need in the women's game to get it to get it growing further. Yeah, Jenny Frampton, I don't know if you've seen, but the Prime Minister caused a bit of controversy <laughs> recently when he was asked about participation in female sports of trans women, trans women, so biological men. Is that something that you've paid attention to? Are you concerned by this current trend and the, the argument over whether or not trans women should be able to participate in female sports? It's a real tricky one. And I think the answer to that is every sport has to be dealt with differently because you've got to look at the physiology involved in every sport. And I don't think there is a good answer, result, there's not a right or wrong. But I do think every sport now needs to look at this quite clearly to create a very fair playing field for both men and women and trans to, to, so that you don't discriminate against the existing women who are participating. And I did a lot of work around the Castor Semenya case and I researched a lot about the comments made by Martina Navratilova and about um, from Paula Radcliffe. 
and I understood their points, but actually this is this is really complicated and every sport has to get this right. And there's no point our prime minister or anybody else coming out with flippant comments because that's not gonna solve anything. In fact, it ends up having a negative trend. I would like to see every single sport address this thoroughly to make sure there's a fair playing field for all. I couldn't agree with you more because I think ultimately we cannot get in a position where we're celebrating the success of women's sport only to create a very unequal playing field when it comes to actually the playing of women's sports. But Janie, to end, I wonder, answer me this, and I guess the answer will be an emphatic yes, but I assume you'll be supporting the Lionesses come July, right? Oh my goodness, 100%. But I will also be supporting women involved in football per se, because hopefully we'll have some women officials uh, at the Euros, I will support women coaches and managers because I want to see the rise and the profile of women in football per se. Janie Frampton, thank you very much for your time today. I don't know about you, but I'm utterly sick of a media and political class that reflexively, it seems, lambast any efforts to restrict immigration, with measures roundly dismissed as heinous, hateful or heartless. Reports suggest that Home Secretary Priti Patel issued a ministerial direction to get through the Rwanda asylum plan to deal with our English Channel migrant crisis. Patel had to give this direction because, reportedly, top civil servants are frankly out of touch with the British public when it comes to immigration. If you ask me, folks, it's great to know that we have a Home Secretary finally determined to stop open borders and the evil trade of people traffickers. Patel hopes that she can replicate Australia's model. Australia, you see, processes asylum seekers 3,000 miles from its borders on an island in the Central Pacific. The numbers in Australia peaked at 20,000 a year, fewer than our own, it has to be said, but crucially fell to 160 the year following the introduction of the policy. In 2015, none at all made dangerous journeys like the ones we see in the English Channel. We might have ended free movement from the European Union, but no one, no one, can argue that we've delivered on the promise to end uncontrolled migration to this country. Look no further than the numbers ferried across the English Channel. In 2018, there were 299. In 2019, there were 1,843. In 2020, there were 8,466. And last year, there was a staggering 28,527. So far in 2022, there have been more than 6,000 brought ashore, with 181 migrants coming across as you were having your fish supper on Good Friday. It's only April, folks. Some predict 60,000 plus by the end of the year, with this summer being a ferry free-for-all. A central argument, folks, against free movement within the EU was the sheer volume of people coming to the United Kingdom. Good economy, good jobs, you name it. Numbers the size of English cities were arriving each year. We risk similar numbers getting here via the English Channel. 
It would be a humanitarian and democratic impossibility, with the British people losing support in their government and in our immigration system. And folks, thus far, the data tell us that 70% of those arriving are men under 35. Hardly the portrayal of a family of refugees coming here to escape war or persecution. And folks, last time I checked, don't know about you, but Macron might be a bit of an arrogant bore, but France isn't a war-torn nation. And I don't know what the liberal left have got against Rwanda, frankly, in opposing this plan, especially, as I say, for those refugees seeking to escape supposedly war-torn France. The public is overwhelmingly opposed to open borders and the security risks that they present. More than two-thirds of the public don't think that people who arrive illegally from a safe country should be allowed to claim asylum. And I get that, right? If you break our laws, why should you benefit from our hospitality? It's important that we get this right to keep public support for genuine refugees. So, folks, with that said, here's wishing the government well in the inevitable liberal lawyer court cases that try to prevent Britain from having border controls once again. It's been a busy week for the Just Stop Oil protesters. They carried out raids on the UK's oil terminals as they continue to demand the government stops funding new oil and gas projects. At the start of the week, Downing Street condemned the guerrilla tactics used to target oil supplies. For my culture or debate today, I'm asking, is it time to listen to the Just Stop Oil protesters or, frankly, should we be ignoring them? Dr Graeme Buss is a Just Stop Oil spokesperson and former principal scientist at Shell. And Howard Cox, the founder of Fair Fuel UK and friend of the show. Graeme, can I start with you, please? Just start us off. What is the ultimate objective of Just Stop Oil? Darren, I think I'm here to irritate you some more. Uh oh Let me tell you who I am for a little bit more. I worked for Shell for 33 years. I was a scientist and engineer. And I worked with the former chairman of Shell, Ron Oxborough, was also a chief well, scientist. Well, Graham, can I just thank and you he knows for the, work, the, for the work you did climate with Shell? Climate crisis is real, and he said so. Well, thank you for the work that you did with Shell, because, frankly, you've kept homes powered, you've given us everyday products, you've ensured that Britain could function. What a miracle oil is. I came on the show because I was asked a question that you sent me, Darren. How best is the country to tackle climate change together while putting an end to civil disobedience? That's why I'm here. Yeah, so how? You asked that question, how to tackle climate change. Tell me. Well, let me. Let me tell you, oil and gas in the North Sea doesn't make us secure. It doesn't keep the cost of living down. And ask yourself, why no windfall tax on the oil companies? Yeah? The government doesn't care about ordinary people, but just their rich mates. You know, we don't own it, they do. We just pay for it. So, Graeme, do you think the way that you're going about this, though, is the best possible way to communicate your message? Yes. Look, I agree with Howard. We're in a fuel crisis at the moment. Just Stop Oil don't want that either. We care about the price of energy for, for the less well-off. The cost of living crisis is a war on the poor and it should end. And it's the government's fault. Howard, then, shouldn't you just get out your car, get on your bike and 
get with the Just Stop Oil programme? Well, the answer to that is a big fat no. Darren, and thank you and happy Easter, my friend. Um, one of the things that we should be looking at here is actually that every single driver in this country and everyone who actually uses oil actually wants to breathe clean air and wants clean energy. All those things. And what is sad about this is this, this protest is senseless. And people, you are alienating everyone else that you need to get on your side. That is the issue. I'd love to sit down and have a debate with you. I've been on so many media programmes in the last two weeks about this issue, and I've asked everyone I've been up against or talking to, including the BBC, and I was up against Nikki Campbell, who laid into me calling me a climate change denier. I am not. I'm a climate change realist. What we need to do is sit round the table and work together and find a better way for cleaner fuels. But at the moment, in this cost of living crisis, which you highlighted, and thank you for that, I really appreciate that, uh, and I congratulate you for saying that, we need to work together to find a better way future. We can't do it overnight, and we can't do it by gluing ourselves to tankers, especially if they only tank cooking oil. Graeme, do you agree with what Harry said there, right? The message might be right, but the tactics are just turning people off. I don't believe that for one moment. The climate crisis is now. It's just as real as the cost of living crisis. And that's why Just Stop Oil is making this very simple demand. No new oil and gas licenses in the UK. It's very simple. Well, Graham, can I ask you a question then? If you genuinely believe, right, which you purport to do so, and I don't doubt your sincerity for one second, but if you genuinely believe that the world it's facts, could end. Mate. The it's world facts. could end. Well, it's not about let me belief. finish. It's let facts. me finish. Come on, I let you finish. You can let me finish. If you genuinely believe that the world could end in a ball of flames, or indeed we could all drown to death, why would you spend your last days on Earth gluing your bottom to a road if the world is going to hell in a handcart? Look. The cost of living crisis is serious, but just you wait till the climate crisis really hits. That's why we're doing this. But you haven't It'll answered the question. It'll hit your family like a I'm, war. It'll you hit your family like question. a war and take everything away that matters to you. I tell you what is yeah. hitting families up and down the country is you lot blocking roads, stopping working people from being able to get to and from work and, at, frankly, exacerbating the cost of living crisis, Graeme. Look, Darren, Darren, you want to know how to bring the country together? GB News needs to tell the truth about the climate crisis. The best thing you could do is tell your audience... This is your moment. This is your moment, Graeme. You've got your moment and, here. And GB I'm... News are giving you that platform. Come on, make the case. I'm not going to talk on a show with a climate denier. Thank you for letting, having me on here, and I'm off now. Bye. Well, Howard, that was quite extraordinary, Howard. Uh, what do you make of all of that, Howard? Do you, what do you think about being called a climate denier? Because we were saying there, please do make your case. Why, if the world was about to end, would you be gluing your bottom to a road? What, you would surely be saying, right, OK, I'm going to be more hedonistic than I've ever been for the rest of my life. There is no denial of climate. I accept that we might be having an impact... But what you're saying, Howard, what you said earlier in your remarks there was that until we get the technology, until we're able to make the transition, that now is not the time, Howard. 
Oh, I couldn't have put it any better, Darren. You got it spot on. I mean, there is no climate emergency. There is a climate computer modelling emergency. And, and what we're seeing at the moment is we need, we, there is climate change. There's no doubt about it. Things are happening. And we do contribute a bit about it, but not as much as, uh, certainly not as much as India, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Brazil, uh, uh, USA, China. They're responsible for 50% of emissions. We're responsible for 1% of emissions. And I always say to every one of those protesters who are, I admire their passion. I always say to them, why are you not going over to those countries uh, and, and actually protesting about what they're doing with their emissions? We do need to bring emissions down. I'm all for emissions coming down, but you don't do it by inconveniencing people. One particular uh, person called me who drives an ambulance. He couldn't get diesel for his ambulance. He couldn't take uh, people to, uh, uh, to a hospital. He had to get another person to come in a long distance. It took an hour to come along. They couldn't do it. That's a little thing, but I've got hundreds of those incidences. I've got thousands of emails of people angry, and they're not getting people on their side. But let well, me say I, this on this air now, Darren. Please, yeah. all of you uh, climate uh, protesters, let's sit together and talk about the best way forward working together rather than inconveniencing people. Absolutely. And Howard, that's what I wanted to do today. That's what I, I wanted to have a genuine conversation. And hopefully we will later in the show as well. But I want a genuine conversation where we say, look, we agree with the ultimate ambition, which is to yep. actually reduce our carbon emissions and actually have cleaner air. Who wouldn't want that? But what I do exactly. say is that the, the democracy denial, the riding roughshod over civil liberties and laws, and that isn't the good way to go about it, because that's turning people off, Howard. That's all I was trying to say. Well, you said it very nicely, Darren. And yes, we, if they want to call us deniers, let them call us deniers. But if I always throw back at them, do you think man can really make a difference? Now, can we do, to turn back the clock? Because it goes back for years and years and decades and millennia, millennia, that we've had global warming in different uh, uh, sort of personalities up and down. We've all the, yeah. We're in a, a situation now where it's gone up a little bit now. It's going to go down again. We are not going to... Do you remember the ozone layer warnings? Oh, all yeah, those sort I of things. Do. I'm nearly 70 years of age, Darren. Yeah. And those ozone warnings, well, that was the end of the planet. Where have they well, gone? The ozone hole would... is closed. Do you, are you hearing from your members that actually there's a frustration with the fact that it seems that unless you're championing woke causes, such as environmentalism, that you can get away with blocking roads and causing menace for people and actually blocking the transportation of vital fuel sources? I am hearing that. We've got uh, their supporters are not members, Darren. I'm afraid they don't claim any money. I wish yeah. they did. <laughs> We've got 1.7 million of them. Uh, no, what what we're getting from it, they're getting very angry because they they're being almost accused on block as though they're being deniers. They believe, like we said before, they want cleaner air. They want their children to grow up in a nice, safe, clean environmental environmental condition. They all want that but they do not want to be inconvenienced and they can't get to work, they can't get to college, they can't get to hospitals, all those sorts of things. And they are thoroughly, thoroughly fed up. And the government can stop this right now. And that's one, I never, never thought I'd say this on here. I actually agree with Keir Starmer. Starmer. We need injunctions on them. Get them off mm. the road. Yeah, well, I never thought you'd be championing law and order with the Labour Party, but there we are, Howard Cox, the founder of Fair Fuel UK. Thank you very much. We'll invite Dr Graham Buss, the former principal scientist at Shell, back on the show next week to put his side across. It's time for my Grilling from Grimes segment. It's been a busy week of news 
<laughs> I think we can all agree on that. Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak were given fixed penalty notices. Just stop oil have been causing havoc all over the country. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, announced new immigration plans, which the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, has called ungodly. So Mike Wood, Conservative MP for Dudley South, he joins me now in the hot seat to discuss all of that. Mike Wood, thank you very much for your time. I want to start with the, the comments from the Archbishop of Canterbury there, Justin Welby. He's branded the government's plans to send asylum seekers from the UK to Rwanda as the opposite of the nature of God, which is a pretty damning assessment. And on Easter Day of all days, I, my personal view, is that the Archbishop of Canterbury certainly shouldn't be political on Easter Day of all days. But there we are. What did you make of that? I, I think that they were unwise uh, comments. I think that the proposals that the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary unveiled uh, this week are aimed actually at help, helping to reduce the number of people risking their lives at sea while still offering people who are fleeing persecution a safe place free from uh, persecution whilst their uh, claims are, are assessed. It helps to uh, tackle evil uh, people, smuggling gangs. It helps to reduce the tragic losses at sea that we've had. It's worked well uh, in Australia. We've heard from the Australian ambassador how successful their, uh, their scheme was. Uh, and I, th I think this is a sensible and proportionate uh, measure to make sure that people who need, uh, who need asylum can actually get the protection they need whilst their applications are considered. Uh, without actually acting as a draw for people to be you know, paying people to smuggle them across Europe and then risking their lives on you know, craft and boats that can barely float. I don't know if you spend as much time on the cesspit also known as Twitter.com as I do, but what I've seen, interestingly, is a lot of sneering and sniping about Rwanda in particular. Are you interested in the fact that all of a sudden it's, you know, OK to sneer at Rwanda when actually, you know, Rwanda seems to be doing quite well at the moment. I, I think that some of the responses we've had on Twitter, other social media, but also parts of the mainstream media uh, really verge on imperialism and the kind of racism that many of those people would take pride in attacking if they if they came from a government minister or for a, a presenter on on your channel. Yeah, indeed. I mean, the Home Secretary was reported to have had to issue a rare ministerial direction to push through these plans, meaning that she takes the ultimate responsibility for it. I bet your constituents are telling you, I assume, that actually they're quite happy with the, the proposals and they're, ex well, not excited, but they're somewhat... Give it their reluctant support, I would imagine, that finally something has been done about this because it's felt like Britain is just completely powerless as far as the, cri the crisis in the English Channel is concerned. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, the, the uh, channel crossings, uh, the sm those small boats crossing the channel, it, it's been one of consistently one of the top issues that I've received emails and letters about over the past few years. People want action to be taken. They want effective action to be taken. And actually, they do think that this is 
uh, proportionate. And if if anything, you know, people's main complaint is it should have happened sooner. And that's why the Home Secretary's had to issue that ministerial direction, because people don't want to spend the next two years whilst people draw up the right projections. They uh, and, and we've seen how you know how accurate a lot of the projections that come from government advisors can be over the past uh, two or three years. People want actions now, so Priti's absolutely right to issue this direction. Of course, the Home Secretary takes personal responsibility for the success or failure of this. It's a key part of our manifesto that we have to deliver. And so as a government, we all take personal responsibility for making sure that this succeeds. What do you say to those, though, that perhaps accuse Brexit Britain of becoming Little Britain? Because the former International Development Secretary and the current MP for, for Sutton Coalfield, Andrew Mitchell, called it impractical, immoral and incredibly expensive. Now, this at a time when he, I believe, was also critical of cuts to the foreign aid budget. Is he getting Britain wrong? I think that's uh, a completely wrong reading of the situation. Obviously, what we've seen with the new plan for immigration is a much fairer and in many ways generous immigration policy that treats people from around the world equally, regardless of the country they're from, which region of the world they're from, the colour of their, ski, uh, their skin, instead of favouring overwhelmingly white people coming to the UK from Western Europe on free movement. We've got an immigration policy that's now been in, uh, now been in force for 18 months uh, that actually considers people on the basis of what they can bring to our, our country, what they can add to our economy, to our society, to our culture, to our people. And that's got to be a better way of doing it. That's the opposite of small Britain. That's the kind of global Britain that I campaigned for in the uh, EU referendum. And I want to see us continue to deliver that. Uh, Mike, in, earlier in the show, we heard from the Just Stop Oil spokesperson, Dr Graham Buss, and Birmingham was one of the areas targeted this week. What did you make of the protests? Are the police being too soft here? Because I imagine, again, that's another gripe of your some of your constituents. Because it strikes me, Mike Wood, that as long as you're championing woke causes, you can actually get away with criminality in Britain. I, I think it looks like that too often in a lot of the country. I don't think anybody believes that whether it was an anti-lockdown protest or an anti-Brexit protest, the protesters would have been allowed to get away with half what we've seen with some of these protests here, but also in previous uh, environmental protests and some of the social protests as well. We, people expect the police to enforce the law uh, as it is. We've seen that happen in parts of the country. In North Warwickshire, we've seen uh, hundreds of arrests. We've also seen the council take out uh, an injunction to allow for the uh, for the depot to uh, for lorries to move in and out of the depot, we've seen similar in Thurrock with many hundreds of arrests. But sadly, you know there are some police police forces that are much less proactive, who seem less interested in uh, in enforcing the rule of law and allowing people to actually move about the country, can carry on with their legal activities than they are with the sensitivities of a woke campaign. Uh, cause. Uh, and sadly, I think part of, sometimes that seems to be the case in the West Midlands as well. And I, I think, you know, West Midlands police need to make sure that, you know, that where there are protests in Birmingham that are stopping this essential infrastructure, that they use their powers proportionately, but effectively to make sure that people can go about their legal activities. 
robust remarks. I I'm quite concerned, and I'm sure, again, your constituents are saying the same, which is that with this is a country going above and beyond, world-leading, in fact, as far as its reduction of carbon emissions is concerned. Do you wonder what actually these activists want? Because they keep saying they want to be listened to. Well, Mike, if you ask me, your party's government is going a little bit too far too fast. And actually, the, the demands that they're making on the British public are in part responsible for the fact that we're all struggling with a cost of living crisis at the minute. Look, I mean, clearly climate change is an important issue, but it has to be balanced with all the other important issues, such as, as you said, the cost of living, uh, energy prices, transport prices, the impact that has on people's livelihoods. We have done better than almost any other country in the world over the past 30 years in terms of reducing our, uh, our carbon uh, emissions. The energy security strategy that was published last week shows how we're going to go further than that in terms of making sure that we have enough nuclear and renewable uh, yeah. capacity to reduce our dependence on oil and other uh, fossil fuels. So we are doing a huge amount. But everybody has a right to peaceful protest. What they don't have the right to do is substitute mob rule for the rule of law by using physical force to stop people doing their legal activity, doing their jobs, carrying out, whether it's going to work, whether it's, you know, Stopping ambulances well, being blocked indeed. crossing going to hospital, stopping printing presses working. That's why I think the actually the powers in the police and uh, police uh, sentencing courts uh, bill are actually needed and they are proportionate to make sure that people can protest, but everybody else can actually go about their their lawful activities without having to give in to the mob. Well, Conservative MP Mike Wood, thank you very much for your time and happy Easter as well. <music> 70 people were arrested during Extinction Rebellion protests across London. Six people, including two Olympic athletes, were detained for scaling and gluing themselves to an oil tanker near Hyde Park on Saturday. Olympic gold medal winning canoeist Etienne Stott glued himself to the tank. Hello there. So why have you joined Extinction Rebellion? What was it about them that enamoured you particularly to their cause? Mm. So Extinction Rebellion are taking this climate emergency, trying to demand action from our government, because right now our government is saying one thing and doing another. Let me quote and you know the Secretary General of uh, the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, it says, and I've got it written down here, some governments and business leaders are saying one thing and doing another. Simply put, they are lying. So in the climate and ecological emergency, our government is saying one thing and doing another, and they are lying. And Extinction Rebellion is demanding our government to stop fossil fuel investments, which is something that the International Energy Agency has said they should do last year. This is a very sensible thing to do in the climate emergency, but our government, for reasons that we may get to speak about as we go along here, are doing the exact opposite. So well, really, I'm here to basically try and hold my long. government to account for the, gov for the decisions it's making right now. I hear you, I hear you, Etienne, but what would you say to those who say, well, hang on a minute, you know, Just Stop Oil are calling for the government to listen to them on all of this, when actually a lot of people will be saying, listen, hang on a minute, what have we been doing up until now? Because it seems to me that you've got the government on your side, you've got much of 
Certainly the media class, the political and media class, are very supportive of your aims and objectives. So how much more do you want us to listen to the activism here? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure we have got the government on our side at all. In the most recent energy strategy that the government announced just a few, a few days ago, they announced to an, an expansion in coal, oil and gas projects. And that's, again, I'm going to quote Antonio Guterres because he has been speaking about this exactly on topic. He said, um, investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure is moral and economic madness. So our actions at this time are to try and create a bit of space so that people can actually realise our government is doing the exact opposite of what the United Nations wants to do right now. They well, are the not on our will... side. They're not on your side. They're not on anyone's side. They are putting through uh, policies right now that are against everyone's interest. And no one would vote for a burned up planet and a destruction of all our future. And no, that's exactly what indeed, the United Nations but, uh, is, Etienne, is telling I also us we say need to, to you, stop. I also say to you that most, most people wouldn't vote for if were you to stand for election and actually put yourself at the mercy of the ballot box instead of gluing your bottom to oil tankers. People might say, well, hang on a minute, I'm not going to vote for a political party that wants to make my home colder and my bank balance poorer. Mm. Well, there's two things there. First of all, the government's strategy recently did not do anything. The two things that it could have done that would make the really big difference to make people's homes warmer and make their balances better would have been to announce a massive retrofit scheme to insulate our, all our homes and make them warmer and reduce our demands and reduce our bills. The second thing it could have done was to invest more in renewable energy, which brings our bills down. Yet, in fact, they've gone down the most expensive route because probably of their pals in the nuclear industry, and like nuclear, they've put all their, all their truck in nuclear, and that is the most expensive form. And these, the, the cheapest and simplest form of, of, of renewable energy is onshore, onshore renewables, and they bottled it. So, in fact, the government have not done the right thing here. They've missed two open goals that were clearly there. And let me also just pick up one other thing that you said. I am not going to run for a party. What Extinction Rebellion demand is for a citizens' assembly, which is a collection of ordinary people across yeah, sections you know of society, that you would, ordinary people, you do that, to come together and make the decisions you know rather than these political parties that are failing us right now. No, it's because you're scared of the ballot box. That's why, isn't it, Etienne? Let's be honest. Let's not beat around the bush here. No, no, let me come to that. No, 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 let me say. No, that's not true. Um, Sir David King, who was the government's own for, uh, chief scientific advisor, he's not that anymore, he said the decisions made in the next two to three years before the end of this uh, parliamentary cycle will shape the future of humanity in the next decades and throughout the century. So we actually haven't got time whilst our government carries on with these policies, which, again, I stress, are against the advice of the United Nations and the International Agency. We haven't got time for them to continue. There's not one person would vote for this if they understood the implications of what our government is doing. They would say this is insane. And right. in fact, the, the, again, they called it madness. It's, it is madness. We cannot burn our planet up. It does not make okay. sense. And these, so, these companies that we're holding to account know what they're doing and our government is letting them get away with it. It's just They crazy. might well be saying that. They might well be saying, let's not invest in new forms of fossil fuels. But right now, as far as the trans period to achieve a net zero is concerned, how are we going to power boilers, gas boilers, for example, 20 odd million of them, in this country, how are we going to power those and keep grannies mm. heated, for example, by wind power? You cannot power people's boilers through wind no. power. 
No, no, you're correct there. So first of all, that's why we have to have this massive retrofit scheme, which will create thousands of green jobs, thousands of jobs. Secondly, we can re-insulate people's houses. That reduces that demand. But the thing really here is, is that ordinary people, they've got, they've got a bit of sense here. They know that this crisis has been created by the fossil fuel companies that are absolutely raking it in. They are making huge profits at this time when people are choosing between heating and eating. And our government is just letting them get away with it. Etienne, so once we, we expose this, they got to understand, we, people can understand that they're no friends of ours. Indeed. Well, we just spoke to a Just Stop Oil spokesperson earlier on the show, and he unfortunately left the interview early. I think there's a better way for everyone to come together and have a discussion like we're having now about the planet. So thank you very much for your time. That was Olympic champion well, Etienne thank Stott, you. who was just released from the police today. Thank you to him for getting involved. Thanks for listening to Real Britain, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave us a comment. I'll see you next time for more Real Britain.